she and her son were walking out of the parking or out of the store that day to the parking lot and she was ambushed by him and she was stabbed 32 times. I mean, she had stab wounds that were through and through. There were marks in the concrete under her body from the knife that had gone through and chipping the concrete underneath. So it was a very brutal murder. Her seven-year-old son sat and watched the whole thing. And he had the bags of groceries in his hands and he ran all the way home. I'd gone this far in my career, and I'd been able to handle everything. And all of a sudden, one day I wake up and I'm like, why am I, why am I remembering this suicide from 1997? Why am I remembering this this female we found dead in her in her house from 1999? You know, and these things just kept flipping around in my head. And that's kind of how I equated it to the Rolodex is that. These images would flip around and they would either go super fast or they'd go super slow. And, and I dealt with this for almost a year. And it was just, and it was daily. You guys had already had a bunch of episodes out, but just listening to the, the leadership that is presented down here at Dallas PD is pretty remarkable and some of the people that were speaking. But then listening to people talk about their critical incidents and how they got through them and you know it's powerful and I think that helped me when this moment hit to recognize that you know this is not normal to feel the way I felt. You're listening to the ATO Bridging the Divide podcast brought to you by the Assisi Officer Foundation. Since 1999, the ATO has given assistance to the first responder community. And now we want to give them a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also want to hear the stories of the many people that support us. Our community is small, but it is strong. We have differences. We don't always agree. And we all make mistakes. But together we can grow. We can heal and we can learn from those mistakes. And together we can bridge the divide. Welcome back ATO family. This is Joe King. I'm with my partner, Kit Wolverton. And today we have the honor of sitting with a guest who traveled over 800 miles to Dallas to join us. The definition of a watershed moment is an event marking a unique or important historical change, of course, of one on which important developments depend. We all have defining moments that forge our path or create a new why in our life and profession. On July 30th, 2022, today's guest, life changed, professionally and personally, as he faced death. Looking down the barrel of a rifle less than 10 yards away, from the moment the rifle was leveled to him and shots were fired, his life would be different. These watershed moments can occur quite often in the world of a first responder. Our guest has over 26 years of law enforcement experience, 21 years marrying IOPD, now slips on vest and gun belt for Cedar Rapids IOPD. He's married to his wife, Jen, 
father to the beautiful Chloe and Haley. Now from growing up on a dairy farm, <clears throat> being a lawn, lawman nearly three decades, to enjoying the much warmer weather and southern hospitality of Dallas, Texas. SC Officer Foundation, honor to sit down with Matt Janicek. Matt, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. All right. We have a special guest co-host, also from the same state. Y'all have heard his voice before. Matt demanded he come on and be a part of this. Growing up as a young officer, he actually watched Dallas SWAT. And I think he's might have been the only one in that state that watched it, but hey. <laughs> We're back with a great Steve Claggett. Steve, thank you for coming. Stop. I'm, I'm, I'm shaking my head no, trying to get him to stop, but he won't. He won't. No, no, you deserve it. All right. Seriously, we're also here with uh, Sergeant May, Laura. She's retiring soon. She's Cedar Rapids uh, PD. She's sitting next to me. Uh, she doesn't want to speak, but I'm going to make her talk later. But thank you all for being here. They actually, we actually have a, an entire Iowa, uh, Cedar Rapids Iowa PD team down to take a look at our wellness unit and pick it apart and go back and tell them that we don't know what we're talking about <laughs> i don't think that's the case yeah but you know, it's been a it's been a great few days with them um and i'm actually I'm, I'm sad to see them go here uh today but we're going to document their visit through this recorded and also document matt's life and career which i think the ato listener is going to find very interesting and inspiring so are you ready to dive into this yes sir all right. You don't call me, sir. I'm nobody. <laughs> All right. You said in your bio you grew up on a farm. Uh, can you kind of tell us about growing up in Iowa and just what was that like? Oh, Steve's going to know, but I want you yeah. to I want to hear from you. This time of the year, it's cold. I um, was born in Fort Dodge, Iowa. I was about four years old. We moved to northeast Iowa. Um, my parents divorced early. I think it was 1982 or 1983. Uh, it was so... Uh, my dad moved on to Illinois, Nebraska, Kansas, and eventually he passed away living in Arkansas um, in 1999. Early on, it was my mom and my half-brother, uh, Frank. Uh, he passed away two years ago from alcoholism. And uh, my mom remarried in 1985, and she married a guy that uh, was a dairy farmer. And at the time, in 1985, it was a fairly large dairy farm in Iowa we would milk over 200 head of cattle um and it's you know that's a seven days a week 365 days a year so we didn't get to take vacations and we didn't we didn't get to do that stuff that you know lots of kids do growing up I think it's the equivalent of belling hay here in Texas it's uh it's hard-ass work and it's it's long days and and nights and you know and it's, it's yeah but you don't bail hay every day no, it's twice true. a yeah. day. Yeah, most times you have to milk twice a day. Wow! And I've heard you can milk anything with nipples. Is that true? <laughs> yeah, it, it, yeah. I got, off your shirt. I, let's find out. I've got I've got nipples, Greg. Can you milk me? <laughs> Meet the parents' reference. See, see, this totally went off the rails. You're welcome. Steve's walking out. No, stuck. Come back, please. Steve, come back. Come, don't leave. He still has his shirt off. We're <laughs> yeah, good. It's okay. He's mad that you asked me to take my shirt off, and I don't. Wow, <laughs> it went south fast, fast. Nobody listens. Don't worry. No, about but it. hey, don't worry. Nobody listens to this anyway. Joe right. Logan probably is though. Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> yeah, he's a number one fan for sure. Yeah, I'm sure he is. Yeah, he's he's welcome on me anytime. Uh, 
Matt, what got you into law enforcement? What, what got your interest in that field? You know, somewhere at home, I've got a picture of me in a pedal police car when I was four years old. So I've always been, I think, intrigued by the uniform and just the job. Um, my mom's cousin was a, he is a retired California Highway Patrolman. I hadn't, hadn't met him up until about five years ago, but there was just always something about the job and the TV shows that you grew up watching, the Chips and Hill Street Blues that my brother always made me watch with him. And, um, and obviously later on in life, cops came on TV. And, you know, if you were, I think if you got into law enforcement in the mid to late 90s, you were probably inspired by cops. Chief Garcia is going to be lighting a cigarette lighter after hearing this and you saying that because he says that every time too. He says that if anybody's that started in the 90s um, that didn't say that cops had didn't have an influence on them and joining their line. Yeah, um, I believe that. What other what other shows did you watch that were law enforcement geared that you liked enjoyed that may have a local flavor? Uh, Dallas SWAT obviously as uh, right. you know I got on the job and everything. Yeah. Well, what about that show? I mean. I, I, I watched it too. But what about the show uh, spoke to you from Dallas, Texas, and all the way going up to uh, Midwest? And what what was your perception of Dallas PD at the time watching that? that Steve Claggett was pretty badass. I don't know. Hey. I got a knife. Just so you guys know, I have a knife in my boot. <laughs> hey, we agree with that. And why do you think that we continually invite him on here? It's right. not, you know, it's. To abuse me. Well, That's all it no, is, to abuse no. me. There's a little, there's a small element of that, I'm sure. Yeah, no, I, his, uh, he is a badass, and that's why he's on here. And uh, and that's also why everybody that watches that show that I've talked to, it's, uh, his name is brought up quite a bit. Yeah, I think just the show itself had to be a good recruiting tool, I would think, for Dallas PD. and and um, But watching that show, or whether it's that show or Kansas City SWAT or whatever it was, Law enforcement's the same no matter where you go. Yeah. It's just the volume of the work that increases. The job's the same. So you you, you always had an interest. Uh, actually, you talk about the pedal car. I have a I have a picture of me when I'm younger than Carmen sitting on like a it's like a little police motorcycle motorized with the little cheap ones with the batteries and uh, yeah. yeah it's a little cop motorcycle. I still ride it, but um, <laughs> I've always had an interest in getting in this profession and. I was wanting to do it in Dallas. So the, you started applying. What what age did you start applying for PDs? I was 21. Oh, wow, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I applied at a couple of real small towns. Okay. Um, one of them was my hometown area, and I got I actually got hired by them. Um, I spent four years on that department, and that's that was a nine-man department. Wow. So um, I was there for four years Okay. Yeah. before I moved on. And then where did you move on to? Uh my wife graduated college in 1999, and she got a job in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and mm. it was about an hour drive, and I think that she just got tired of the commute, and I always wanted to work at a bigger department, so we moved to Marion, Iowa, and I got a job with them. Steve, do you know where that's at? Marion? Yeah, suburb of okay. Cedar Rapids. Yeah. Okay. Yep. yeah, I've never been up there. I may have to come up and visit y'all after after this, so yeah. if y'all have have me i'll come up because i've never give me a reason to come up there and you have to actually and, wear pants up there though it's weird do can i get can i get to milk some nipples that that's that's the only reason i'd want to go up there <laughs> steve please steve wow. come back don't can, don't can leave I jump, can i jump in with some serious stuff here <laughs> well we're quick? gonna get we're gonna get to very right. serious so i'm trying to lose i'm trying to loosen them up I'm trying to loosen myself up <laughs> laura's over here shaking her head she's gonna walk out too <clears throat> 
Um, no, where we can take any of this out, but I'll, I'll leave all that in. Um, <laughs> what did serving mean to you? You, you, you know, when it comes to serving others, and what drew you to that? There's a little bit in my bloodline. My mom was a school teacher, mm-hmm. um, so um, on my dad's side of the family, I've got a cousin who. Uh, he recently retired from the army. Um, I don't remember what rank, but he was pretty high. Um, and he made a really good career that I've got another cousin who is a deputy sheriff in Columbia County, Wisconsin. So he's, I think two years away from retirement. And then his brother is a capital security officer in, uh, Minneapolis or for the Minnesota state. So you only applied for basically department you applied for, you got on, um, I applied for a couple other ones too and just didn't turn those down or didn't get them. Yeah. Anything out of state? No. Okay. You just want you, cause she, cause Jen took the job and you wanted to stay, you wanted to stay close to home. Yeah. Our families were there. And at the time, I think that was just the best for us was to stay close to family. And I did, uh, later in my career, Mary and I, I applied for the Iowa state patrol and made that through to a conditional job offer and then talked myself out of that and, stayed with pd work your wife is your wife uh, jen is here and i have a question for her so once he decided he wanted to get into uh, law enforcement what what did you think about that we were young um i matt and i met originally like i was in high school i was a sophomore in high school he had graduated high school and so we were kind of high school sweethearts (laughs) um and we got together and dated for many years and got married and then you were actually married we were married when we um went into law enforcement already so we started you started your career before we got into sorry you're good you started your career before um we got married so I know the climate was different for law enforcement mm-hmm. back then in the country. I was, like the I was naive. Okay. Did, did <laughs> I you, were you worried about young. the danger? Worried about the danger of it? I didn't think about that. I was young and very, I would say, naive. Um, I grew up in a household. I mean, I grew up on a dairy farm. Uh, my parents, they were young when they met. Um, they were, they had we didn't see a lot outside the farm, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I went to high school and we were from a very small town and I would say going into this profession and him being in law enforcement, I entered it pretty naive. Um, well, a lot of people do. I mean, a lot of, uh, most people don't have a really good feeling of what police work is about and also what, their family member or their significant other is actually getting into, right? right. I mean, you, nowadays, I think it's more out there because there's so much more in the media and a, and a lot of it's negative. The negative, anything negative stands out more than a positive thing, right? I mean, it's, you can go back to the old, you know, the Andy Griffith show and, you know, and, and Norma Rockwell paintings of, uh, of police, that perception of police and the outlook on police is way different than it is now. We only hear about, Police, really, if it's something, sadly, if it's, a, it's something negative. There are some positive things there, but usually the media kind of jumps on things uh, from a negative light. So now, I mean, I can't imagine 
starting this profession right now and the climate that's in back in when, when was that like what year was that 1996 oh yeah okay so was, we we started around the same time and and that, and that wasn't when the country was looking at i mean they, you know police were were not looked at like they are now so being a significant other a wife you wouldn't really see a a you know you wouldn't have the fear of oh my god you're gonna get like ambushed i mean there's always a chance of of getting into a gunfight going back to when policing started <laughs> uh the robert pill modern american policing but it's now it's you it's you almost don't even feel safe going to a restaurant to eat right i remember in marion he would come home and he would tell me what he had gone through that day or that night at work there were a lot of those you're not going to believe this shit type of stories yeah you know and in in a smaller town like that you know a lot of the people you're dealing with you know in a, in a big city we don't know the people you know we, we might be like hey this is this is the cook at the restaurant we eat at but we don't really know who he is you know smaller town you probably have a little bit more intimate knowledge of who people are yeah and that you know my first agency with nine people i mean 4500 population you were a cop 24 7 365 days right you know you couldn't go to walmart without somebody coming up and talking to you and asking you a question or to a restaurant so yeah and that's that's a unique perspective there and now back to to jen i don't think that any of us really unless you grew up with a police officer in your family we're all naive as to what it is to be either in law enforcement or in a relationship with someone who's in law enforcement so don't don't beat yourself up on that it's it's not normal to to understand what people are going through until you've gone through it I totally agree with that. Um, I feel like just the news, the media right now, that's, well, over the years, that's evolved. Um, It seems like all the bad stuff makes the news, and that's what our kids see. That's what we hear, like, weekly, daily about all the bad. And, um, you know, with everything that's gone on, I would say it's also taken an impact um, being in law enforcement, just children in law enforcement. Yeah, for sure. The the kids suffer that also, but I don't think it's easy for everyone to say, you know, the police are bad, but I would guarantee you there's thousands of people that would say officer Janicek's a great man. You know, officer King's a good dude. And it's, it's really easy to paint with a broad brush, but it's really hard to hate individuals. And I've, I've always said it's, it's, it's easier to be in someone's face and, and have them tell you how they really feel because they'll, they'll say, Oh, I, I don't like the police, but you're a great guy, you know? And there's a, there's a lot of that that goes on. They kind of get lumped into, you get one bad cop and then they get lumped into that assumption of almost every cop's bad. And it's a stigma that I would say you guys have to carry a lot. It, and it's gotten way worse over the last, uh, the last few decades really it's just been and it's snowballing and i think i think it's getting a little better lately but um you know that that can turn on a dime and 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 every time there's somebody across the country in another state that does something or even out here in dallas that do something that makes us all look bad we know that that's going that broad brush is gonna we're gonna be right underneath it and everybody we're lumped in I mean, and, and I, I don't see any other professions that are that get lumped in for something so negative like policing. Like you hear about, you hear about uh, some churches, some uh, 
priests, pastor, you hear about bad behavior, but you don't see people going across the country and, and, um, and protesting and tearing up the town over that. Or you hear about, uh, doctors that are, uh, that, that malpractice and then they intentionally in some cases, uh, kill people and, 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 uh, permanently damage them, but you don't see the, uh, the global protests, you know, that you do, uh, against police officers in this profession and it yeah it's that is a lot to carry for us now but it's kind of the way it is and you just kind of have to adjust but as we're adjusting out there in the field and we go through that emotionally you're carrying it home and you're and it's affecting everything that you go home to and they have to do it because while you're out at work they're sitting there with the anxiety that oh my god you know matt's at work and you know, and, and is he going to come home? That's a real, that's a real concern. That's always been a concern, but even more so now because it's, there's the information is at everybody's fingertips now and it's so readily accessible. Right. So you went to Marion, Marion PD. Can you kind of talk about that department? Uh, what, uh, what are some of the units that you worked on? You know, I had the opportunity up there to every assignment that I put in for, I was, granted an opportunity to work in um minus crime scene and canine which were two things that just didn't have any interest to me but you know patrol officer i was an fto i was on our uh, srt entry team i was a sniper with our srt um dea drug task force i went into investigations and i was also part of a homeland security investigations task force and then in 2017 i was promoted to patrol sergeant so yeah would you going from going from a troop to a supervisor? Did it? How did you feel about that? How did was it what you thought it would be, or is it was it better or worse? You know, I was talking about that earlier. I I didn't take that promotion for the right reasons. Um, I took it looking forward to retirement and bolstering that retirement. That's the right reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that being said, you know the impact that I, I made on some officers as their supervisor. Uh, looking back on it, I think had a bigger impact than what that's going to make on the retirement. Do you think your experience as a supervisor has helped you now that you've gone and joined another department and and started over? Absolutely. Yeah. It, it, it's given me a different, it's given me a different vision on, on what leadership looks like and what it should look like and and what I'm, I'm seeing. Right. Here's always my question with police supervisors. Did, did they teach you to supervise or did they teach you to lead? Because there's a big difference. <laughs> there is. Um, they taught us to supervise. Okay. You know. Um, to manage I've, people. Yeah. Okay. And I've talked to some people about that too. I, I think that we handled uh, discipline wrong. We would discipline because people didn't know how to correct the problem. Right. And so we were really quick to hand out discipline because that was the solution okay. to where the real solution should have been. Let's get to the root of the problem. Mentorship. Yeah. Why did that happen? Why did you make that decision? And what can we do to make sure that doesn't happen again? Instead of just handing them the piece of paper with the threat of here's your discipline. You do it again. This is what you're facing. This is what you're facing. So, yeah, we were taught to. Supervised. Okay. I think that's very, very typical of most departments today. They it, supervisors are easier to, I hate to use the word control, 
but basically have them follow a line right. and leadership because leadership looks out for their people first and then department second. And yeah. I think right now they, they want leaders that will toe the line. I don't know that we even have any sort of training. Like when I went through my supervisor school, my sergeant school, they didn't teach us any of the stuff we needed to know, like how to do the job like nothing, how to do your payroll systems, nothing about how to do the daily details that you do at every police station. None of that stuff was taught. You know, it was more about the disc model. You know, we did a lot of those weird disc model deals. We talked about a lot of theories, but there was no actual leadership training. And I, I don't, I don't know that I believe that you can be taught how to be a leader. I think that you could learn it, but I don't think it can be taught if that makes any sense. Right. Well, I, th- I think a lot of people promote, uh, you said you promote it for the wrong reasons. I think there was a lot of people, because you were looking for retirement and, and, and basically that, that is not a, that is not a bad reason to promote because, but as long as you take care of the other things too, for the right reasons, I think a lot of people promote just to get more power and, and in some case be a bully. And we, we yeah. see that at, at every rank and usually people, the first time they become, they get that first supervisor role. They're going to use that, and you see them climb higher in their career. And Steve, you you know, and we all have. They use that as a basically a bully pulpit to continue that, and the higher they go, and then you know that that's the wrong reason right there for your fi- financial future and and promoting. That is not a bad reason. Well, I was telling Kent that two weeks before I took the pro, I was offered the promotion. I was asked by an officer, like, "Are you ever going to take the sergeant's? Are you ever going to take a sergeant's promotion?" I said, "Absolutely not. I'm in investigations. I'm working Monday through Friday with weekends off. Why would I do that?" And then two weeks later, the chief presented me the opportunity and a few hours later we thought about it talked about it and thought that was the right thing to do but yeah i i, I never i'm i'm still on the bottom of the totem pole and i'm, <laughs> I'm not going to change on that and you know uh so sergeant wolverton here he was he was in us uh, he was a supervisor over swat for a while and uh he also went he went to the canine unit right after that kent yep and then but then you have somebody like like steve claggett that he took a he, he was you took a lot of more of a leadership role in the in the SWAT unit than y'all had a, such a core group though. Yeah, that, it's it's different because in you get into a unit like that and your leadership and it's the same way as on the street your leadership can either be deliberate or dynamic. The deliberate stuff's the day to day, you know, the grinding out, the paperwork, um, telling guys where to go, and then the dynamic is when the oh shit moment happens. You know, and sometimes you get guys that'll step up that aren't leadership because leadership's not there or right. not in a position to make calls and they'll step 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 up uh, take control and, and win the day which is a good thing uh, mission success no matter what it takes to get there so yeah walking away going home at the end of the night that's that's the most important absolutely yeah. absolutely so how many years did you spend there at marion uh 20 years and eight months okay well that's okay so that is half your life yeah. Of spending that, uh, as going from a very young man, you know, to two decades of at a at a agency. So, what made you leave that agency? I mean, just with, you know, there was a reason you left, and we don't even really get into why. But it, how hard of a decision was that to to? I'm going to make this change, and and can you kind of walk us through that? You know, first it it sounds bad, but I was kind of bored. I was bored with what I was doing at the time um, as a sergeant, and it just kind of became mundane. Um, 
Cedar Rapids police were offering a, a lateral transfer program where you could come in salary wise at your years of service. Um, you'd come in at that salary level. And for me, that wasn't a huge financial, uh, gain because I was making sergeant pay at my other department. I mean, it was less than a thousand dollars difference. So it wasn't like I was making bank by making that move. But I think first and foremost, I mean, I think I was just, I was kind of bored with everything that was going on right then and there. And I needed a change. Um, I saw some stuff in leadership that I didn't like. Um, you know, I, I think some of the leadership we had was subpar at, at best, but I don't blame them because it was what we saw growing up on that department with the older guys. It's what we were taught. It's what we knew. And so I just thought it was time for a change. Um, this opportunity came up. Um, Jen and I had a lot of conversations about it. You know, it's a I'm, big move. It was huge because... I was giving up rank. I was giving up seniority. And, yeah, it was a big, big decision to make. Can you describe the department size, like Marion versus Cedar Rapids? Like, how, how big is the department um, city, too? Yeah, Marion had an authorized strength of 48 officers. Okay. I think we were at 46 when I left. Wow, um, capacity. Yeah, yeah um, that's not the case for them right now. Wow. Uh, population was around 42,000. Cedar Rapids has an authorized 228 officers and 135,000 people, approximately. Okay. So about five times, I mean. What is the crime like in Marion versus Cedar Rapids? Um, Marion is a bedroom community. We don't have a lot of commercial property in that city. And so your crime is your, you know, your juvenile stuff, your criminal mischief calls. Burglaries, like home, home burglaries? Um, more... More some, res uh, yeah, residential and some commercial burglaries, um, a lot of domestics, you know. Okay. But so for some of our non-police listeners, in the police department, a lot of what you do is based on your seniority, like your days off, the shift you're working. You know, if you want to take the actual holiday off, you have to have some time there. So to, to take 20 years of, of experience and tenure with a department and start all the way over again, you know you're going to one of the more undesirable shifts, you know, either late nights or, or evenings. You're not going to get good days off, probably a Tuesday, Wednesday, or Wednesday, Thursday. All right. So that's a huge decision for you to say, hey, I'm, I was a, a pretty tenured sergeant, you know, over 20 years on a department. To to leave that and go someplace else and not have a huge financial gain just because yeah. you wanted to, to do a little bit more and, and really assist the community that you were living in because there were more problems there, That that's that's admirable. You know, and that was tough. You know, I gave up I don't know, 400, 500 hours of leave that I had in my bank. Wow. And I started with zero and started earning 16.6 .6 hours a, a month. You know, I, that first year I was there, I think I took like six days off. And I'm oh. like, I have it. I took six days off a month prior to that. You know, it was just, yeah, and, it was crazy. And, and how old were you whenever you got to Cedar Rapids? 46 okay, that's it that's actually actually i got hired on my birthday so i was oh, wow. my first day on the job i was 47 so happy birthday and now here go take that call over there um yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey rookie go, go do that yeah. you yeah, know that, that joke's been out there a lot uh, <laughs> no that that is a that is a tenured officer to be starting over at a new city i mean it's that, that is you usually don't see that that quite often in this profession really i mean you we have several people that leave dallas pd but they don't leave it usually with that 
two decades on. It was very humbling. I had one person, I had seniority over one person and he came from the department I came from at the same time. So, (laughs) um, but it was very humbling. In fact, there was one day I was walking through the hallway and this, this young girl came up to me and she says, Oh, is your daughter Chloe? And I said, yeah, you know where I'm going with this. She goes, we went to high school together. I'm like, Oh God. (laughs) You just go put yourself on a sick day and go home. Yeah. So I got a 21 year old dad, like almost two years of seniority on me. That's funny. Dang. So starting over with, you had to go through a, an academy. I know you have a lateral transfer. Was there an academy you had to go through? Or? There was not. Um, no. The academy, I went through our Iowa Law Enforcement Academy in Des Moines. Cedar Rapids Police Department, they host their own academy. Mm-hmm. Um, but the academy stuff transferred. Um, our pension transferred. Those were two deal breakers for me. I didn't want to start over on a pension, and yeah. I did not want to go through an academy. So Cause you talk about losing everything. That would, right. Yeah, you don't want to do that. Right. Uh, losing time and, and time bank is one thing, but that right. that is your future. Right? Yeah. yeah. So when you got out there, what you say the, the the crime in Marion versus Cedar Rapids, what struck you the most when you got out there as far as how faster of a pace was it? And especially you have two decades of of experience. You have two decades of of maybe a little complacency that had set in as an older mm-hmm. officer. And you also have all the time as a, as not as a supervisor and not like a f- completely a supervisor frontline troop, but you're not one of the a police officer at that point. So what'd you notice about the pace of that, of going to a new city like that? Um, when I was on overnights in Marion uh, or what y'all call deep nights down mm-hmm. here, when I was on deep nights, we, you know, my entire shift would handle 18 calls in yeah. an eight hour shift. And when I came to Cedar Rapids, like just my car alone, we're getting dispatched to 18 calls, you know? Okay. So there was a significant difference again, you know, like I stated, the police works the same everywhere. It's just the volume of it. And that's basically what it was. Anything unique in Iowa? Now, when I was there, it was anhydrous ammonia thefts were huge and, and poaching and, Oh, I mean, guys would get into shootings over stealing somebody else's skins, fox skins hanging in a barn somewhere. I mean, it was it was crazy like that. But I mean, still violent. We're not that rural. Anything? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> thank you. That explains a lot about me. No, but I mean, what, is there anything unique about the Cedar Rapids area? We, you know, we're the second largest city in Iowa and second largest department. I I think one of the bigger shocks I had is in the first two and a half months I was on that department, I responded to more legitimate shots fired calls with actual shell casings retrieved than I had in 20 years in two and a half months. So that was a, a big shock. And when we would have something like that in Marion, everybody got called out. The entire CID unit would get called out and, and we would, you know, it was a, it was a deal. And now, I mean, you go to Cedar Rapids and we're like, you know, you got rookie officers that are putting the, the tents over the rounds and we're, we're processing the scene ourselves. So it was a big difference. So when you, um, how did the younger officers that had, they, how did they look up to you when they or, or treat you whenever you got there being an older officer, but new to them? Well, I walked in the locker room one day and I had a magnet handicap sticker put on my locker <laughs> oh so if that tells you anything bastards. <laughs> those bastards um yeah so that's 
That was that. There could be much worse. Put right. it in your locker. I've, trust, I've done it. Trust me. <laughs> you know, I, I think that the guy that came over with me, Brian, he uh, he's a few years older than me age-wise. And, you know, I think we both gained some respect from those younger guys just because they could they could trust us on calls. They could come to us, and, and we would be able to mentor them a little bit um, and help them out. But, again, it was humbling because I was now – I was a peer with them. I mm-hmm. just had – 26 years of experience and what date what date you remember you did you start with cedar rapids august 30th of 2021 okay well i want to i want to move forward to less than a year on with uh cedar rapids to an incident on july 30th 2022 we're going to get into your involvement with this podcast and how we met later on in this episode okay but I want, I want you to, you, so you know I want you to paint a picture for the listener. Okay, let's say that I just search. It's Kent, like, you know, Kent likes when I do this. You're out in a car and say, ah, yeah, I've caught up on Joe Rogan. I've caught up on um, this podcast. I want to find a new podcast, police podcast. So I do a search for nonprofit or a true crime podcast. And, oh, what's this ATO Bridge and Divide? Oh, it's a Dallas badge. Okay, so I'm start listening. And they they start listening to these stories. And they're in Florida or they're in they're in uh, California or they're in Germany or Italy. They're listening to this story and they're wanting to put themselves at the scene. Can you help put the listener at your scene in July 2022? Yeah, I was assigned to our northeast side, which is a lot of shopping, residential type area so um relatively quiet on on deep nights up there um that particular night on the on the far southwest side of town one of our canine officers um called out that he had just clocked a car at 93 miles an hour and i think it was a 45 zone and he said he was trying to catch up to the vehicle he then got back on the radio and said that the suspect vehicle had turned around and tried to take him head on and tried to wreck him out head on. He said he was going to go back after that car. Once again, that suspect turned around and tried taking him head on a second time. By this time, several officers were getting to the area and trying to corral this guy, but it just, his driving and everything just got way out of hand and too crazy. And the commander said, we're done. We're not going to chase this guy anymore. And it's not worth the risk. Um, did y'all have a chase policy that they were strict or was that was just a call, a judgment call right there? We have a chase policy, that, okay. but I mean, we're allowed to chase. Mm-hmm. Um, we're very restrictive here in Dallas and, and, and that's why I ask. Yeah. Um, and that was something new to me as well, because at Marion, we were pretty restricted, um, okay. on chases, but in Cedar Rapids, we are allowed to chase. There's obviously, you know, the number of vehicles that we can have involved in the, you know you don't want to parade a clown cars behind the yeah. suspect so you get they they disregard the chase because of basically just because of how erratic and and um you know the the suspect is driving it just got too dangerous to the public i mean granted it was at three something in the morning it just got it just got too dangerous he he actually did try to uh swerve at an ambulance head-on as well just we weren't even chasing at that time that was just witnessed by officers so he was he was heading up on a road um 
that was coming up to my district in my area. So, and there's a big long bridge that crosses that our river to my, my side of town. So I, I sat up on that side of the bridge and the decision was made that if he was coming across that bridge, even if we weren't pursuing him, that we were going to stop stick his car and, and get him stopped just because his behavior was too bad. We needed to get him off the road the best we could. Um, and we sat and waited and waited, nothing happened. And half hour went by and so we just decided to that was going to be the end of it so i cleared myself from the call and i started going down a back road i was going to head over to the interstate and i was going to go into the into the station and work out and i'm about halfway to the interstate and one of the officers uh uh blair cavin she got on the radio and she's like oh, i'm behind that car and you know it's driving relatively normal compared to what he was driving and so she was following that, that car and they came across that bridge. But as soon as she said that, I was like, damn it, Blair. I just, I just wanted to go work out. You know, I was halfway, halfway to the interstate. So I turned around, made a U-turn. I started going back toward them and they came off of that road and turned toward me and the vehicle, um, went past me. Blair was behind that, the suspect vehicle. And I turned around and got behind Blair. There was a lot of radio traffic. And so I didn't even get on the radio to advise dispatch I was there. There were other officers coming, too, so I figured somebody would recognize that I was there. And dispatch could see it on the map. But um, the guy just stops, like, abruptly in the road. And um, Was he driving – how was he driving at that point when he stopped? It was a very short distance from where he turned off. So, I mean, I guess normal at okay. that point, other than the fact he just came to an abrupt stop in the travel portion of the lane. Um, Blair got on the radio and said the guy just stopped. I pulled up behind Blair and then he took off. And when he took off, he did take off at a very high rate of speed, very erratic, jumped the curb, got back onto the road. And at that point we were now following the vehicle at a distance, but relatively close, but at a pretty high rate of speed. He was probably traveling 70 and a 35. I mean, he was, he was booking right along. Um, as we're going along, <laughs> Blair got on the radio and she asked one of our sergeants, she's like, can I make, can I go ahead and try this traffic stop again? And there was a pause and maybe a few seconds, the sergeant got back on the radio and said, yeah, go ahead. So Blair uh, lit, lit the car up. I turned on my lights and tried to catch up to him. And at this point he had really kind of hammered down and the road is very hilly, windy, and I came up around a corner and I, Blair had gotten on the radio and said the guy had, had stopped and they pulled over and she was very, she was very calm on the radio. You know, she's like, what kind of neighborhood are we in right now? Residential. Okay. Um, it's, it's heavily wooded, but residential. Got it. Um, so when I came up around the corner, it looked like a normal traffic stop. Like Blair was behind the vehicle to the left of or to the north side of where this car stopped was nothing but woods. And I thought, man, this guy's going to bail. He just came out. To, he's going to bail. So I'm going to come around on the left side of Blair, almost, you know, pseudo felony stop style. I can maybe cut him off and get a little, again, I'm not a spring chicken. I needed a little, I need a little bit of distance, you know, to help me out. Here in comes a, in your a, workout. Yeah. Yes. In, a, in a foot chase. And uh, so I, I'm pulling around on the left side of Blair. And as I do that, the door, the driver's door of the suspect field just flies open. And all of a sudden this guy starts to get out. I'm thinking, okay, you know, is he, he is getting out pretty slow if he's going to run. 
And then all of a sudden I see he's got a long black gun in his hand. So I'm I'm screeching up to a halt and I see him pull the gun up at Blair's car. And he is leveled at her. He drops the gun. He pulls the gun back up, levels at her, drops the gun. But at this time I'd come to a stop. And I came out between my open door and my A pillar and I yelled, you know, drop the gun. I don't I I didn't even get a full second drop the gun out of it and he turned and leveled the gun at me and I opened fire at the same time Blair had gotten out of her vehicle and she'd opened fire on the suspect as well. Did the suspect, uh, did he, did he shoot? He did. Really? Um, he got one round off at me. Okay. Um, we were at a distance of about seven yards. So like a normal, just normal traffic stop. I mean, just, yeah. so w- how, f- how close was the, was the shot on you? Um, I don't know the exact answer to that. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't find it was a shotgun and it was a, a, a BB round type type shot. So they didn't really find anything in the dirt hill behind me rounds wise. Um, when I had my interview later with our uh, Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation, the DCI, you know, it was they talked about that shot and they told me it was a couple feet from what they could determine. From, from hitting me now jen have you ever heard that story in that that aspect yet yes he came home and unloaded on me that day that morning he was in the pd and i was i got up early to head into work and it was odd i got a text message saying can you talk and so i called him right away and i'm like hey what's up and he's like, I was in a shooting this morning. And it's like that gut-wrenching where your stomach just drops feeling. And I'm like, are you okay? And he's like, I'm okay, I'm okay. And he's like, can you come into the police department? And I said, I'll get dressed and I'll be right in. And so I drove down to the police department and all I could think about was, he's okay, is this a justified shooting which by the way we've had this discussion i said don't ever ask that question all that goes through your mind this is the environment today though yeah mm-hmm. right. that's the crazy part about it is everything now is 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 built around liability and culpability when it comes to police work and that's it, a that's a, a legitimate question that you need to know yeah so that was one thing that went through my mind and the other thing, I really hate to say this, but were they white or were they black? And I'm like, you know, you just don't know anymore. And I'm like, and I, I wanted to know what I was getting, we were getting ourselves into. And I pulled in the PD, and one of his good friends let me in the gates. And he, you know, Blake was there, he gave me a hug, and he's like, he's okay. And I'm like, I need you to answer two questions and I asked him those two questions and I would it would it was a big you know just the weight lifted off me at that time I'm like I couldn't wait to get back to see him just to put my eyes on him to make sure he was okay but when Blake told me those answers to the two questions I had I just felt a big weight because I didn't know how my life was going to change and my kids lives were going to change that day so well, it, it, there's change, right? There is that has caused a domino effect. Uh, it could have been a way 
worst domino effect, obviously. But when you got in there and saw and saw him at the PD, can you kind of just describe like what was going on? Yeah, at at that point, um, DCI agent had already been in and spoken to me, and um, I had a peer support sergeant that came in, uh, Ben Weary, and you know he came in just because there had been an, an OIS and. Mm-hmm. Ben and I had a relationship. He was my sergeant for six months when I was on the shift and had a pretty good relationship. And the whole peer support thing was new to me. Uh, I'd never experienced that. And he's like, you know, I'm, he's like, you can have anybody you want, but I'm here if you want me. And I was like, yep, have a seat, you know. So we sat down and, you know, getting processed on all that. And, um, you know, I, my, my buddy Blake, um, it's kind of funny because we have the the last wishes packet that we fill out, you know, and, and I had uh, neglected to fill mine out for months, but we had talked about it, and, and Blake was one of them listed that I would like to come to the house if something ever happened to me, and so when I talked to Blake that morning on the phone, and he said, have you talked to Jen? I said, no, not yet. He goes, you want me to stop by the house? I'm like, oh, God, no. <laughs> yeah. Don't stop by the house, you know? Um but yeah, it was it was it was a lot going on at one time when she got there. And you and that was something you had never experienced like at Marion. We had had one officer involved shooting. Um the officer shot at a subject, but he wasn't hit and but that was it. That's the first time you had been involved personally though. You you pulling the trigger and being shot at. Yes. Okay. And it's a long time to go through a career and and then at that point it it happens. Um. So, how was your partner? How how was how how was she holding up? Um, you know, at the scene, she was pretty upset because she thought that when he fired at my direction, she didn't know it was me. She just knew it was another officer to her left, and she thought that that officer had been shot, not realizing it was me. Um, and she was pretty worked up about that until she found out you know it was me and I was I remember sitting there and her yelling she's like are you okay and I was like, yeah I think so she goes you were shot at did you get hit and I said I, I don't think so I think I'm good as we're tending to the suspect on the ground so once he once he went down you had to go up and and save his life right? yeah we did um Sergeant Briley had extensive medical uh, background and training and Sergeant Briley came on scene and really took control of that until the ambulance personnel got there and we did we ultimately saved his life um sergeant briley was able to pack one of his wounds and and uh which we were told later would have ultimately killed him had we not given him that first first aid you know talk about a mix of emotions i mean you you show up and someone is pointing a gun at you so there's absolute fear right like nobody i don't care who you are if someone's pointing a gun at you, that's not that's not right. You get a little bit puckered up by that, and then you're angry, right? It almost instantly goes from fear to anger. So you're fighting this guy back now, and then you go into caretaker mode right after that, and you're trying to save somebody's life. I mean, that's a lot of emotion. It's, in it's contrary a few to human instinct. Mm-hmm. Human instinct is not this guy just tried to kill me, so now we need to make him better. It's it's so contrary, and and people that have that presence of mind, it, it they're a whole different level. Yeah, it was, um, and it, I don't really think we had a lot of time for that anger to set in because it was just, it was so quick, you know, from firing the gun to, to getting up there and helping him out. 
Um, it's, but you know, your, your mind, it's crazy what the brain does, mm-hmm. you know, um, because you, you're able to switch to those modes in, in a heartbeat. And, you know, even looking back at, at the event itself, um, which I found this out when I met with my attorney a couple of days later, um, we got done watching the video, the car cam and the, the body cam. And my attorney made some comment about me not putting the car in park. And I said, what are you talking about? And he's like, you didn't see that? And I said, no. And so he pulls the, the car cam or my body cam back up and you see me flying up and you see me going to put the, and we drive, you know, Ford Explorers and you see me messing with the gear shifter and then body cam is me between the, the A pillar and the door firing my rounds you see me get back in the car and then get back out again. Well, when I get back in the car, I actually put the car in park. So, which was all confirmed with our arbitrator system is when I stepped out, I had my left foot on the ground and my right foot on the brake and my right foot stayed on the brake while I fired my gun, got back in, put the car in park and then got out and approached. So, I mean, I set my cell phone down at the house. I go to the bathroom, I come back and I have no idea where the hell it's at and how yet I can remember to get back in the car and put it in park. <laughs> it's funny how the brain works under stress. Yeah. It's amazing. It was well, amazing. Well, it, you, you, you said it, you can either panic or composure, yep. right? Yep. Yeah. So, so when you go back to your, you're doing your debrief and everything's somewhat calmed down, that's that's when kind of and Jen shows up and you get it all wrapped up and you just you get sent home right yeah do Cedar Rapids do you get put on like a is there like a leave I'm I'm guessing yeah okay yeah we um and I I need to back up a little bit because when I came over to Cedar Rapids and people asked me why I kind of joked and said you know I want to do real cop shit Mm mm-hmm and don't do morning. steve claggett shit welcome yeah, to cop shit <laughs> well that it's morning that, that morning we're sitting in there and one of the commanders stuck his head in and he looked at me and he goes is this the real cop shit you're looking for it's like yeah i just shook my head i was like i wasn't expecting it because that was 11 months to the day that i was on the job there so good for you um but yeah i so that morning the dci agent sat down you know i had spent 40 minutes on the phone with my FOP attorney and talking to him and he gave me all kinds of advice and everything. And he told me, he's like, you know, go home, get some sleep. Don't drink any alcohol, get to sleep, get rested up, whatever. The DCI agent came in and we talked and he told me what's going to happen going forward. And he says, go home. I don't know if you drink, but if you do, you might want to have a couple drinks and then go to sleep. And I thought, well, who am I going to believe, the attorney or the D? And I'm going with the DCI agent. <laughs> <laughs> Whichever one said what I wanted to hear. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but no, I, you know, I went home and um, Jen went to work. And uh, I went home and, and tried to sleep. Got quiet in the house, didn't it? It did. I mean, I yeah. think I got three hours on and off. Um, my phone was just blowing up. I should have I shut my phone off. Yeah. But in a matter of just over 48 hours, I think I had over 120 text messages from officers that I work with officers. I didn't even know at Sea Rapids police department. That's, you know? that's twofold, right? So part yeah. of it keeps you awake and it keeps your mind running over and over and over again. Right. But it's therapeutic to sit there and, and process it while you're thinking about it. Right. And to go back to the attorney versus the, the rep, um, we don't talk about it quite often. Joe and I've talked about it a little bit, but you said the brain does some crazy things. And the brain actually controls the rest of your body. So it dumps all those chemicals into your blood system, right? Right. So your adrenals are firing off like crazy. That's why you can't sleep. 
you've got all those other things going on, you know, whatever you had that day, if you were a drinker before, whatever, you've got all that in your body. So moving your blood, right, through a little bit of exercise is, is fantastic after you go through something like that, pushing as much water as you can to get all that stuff out of your body, right? I mean, you have to, your body works in that manner. It takes what's bad and it pushes it out. Mm-hmm. But if you don't assist it with that, it just stays in there longer. So my advice, if, if you if you want a drink or two, go ahead. But, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not a doctor. I'm just saying. Right. Uh, you got you to gotta flush all that stuff out of there, you know. But sleep is, is absolutely important, but it's going to be hard to come across just because the way your body is designed and, and the, the things that fired off on that. Yeah, and that night we went to her sister's house and, and hung out with family. And, and I when I got home, I mean, it was... I was out. I yeah. crashed hard. And it was a really hard 10, 12 hours of sleep. So investigators were talking to you at what point? That night? Um, yeah. Did you have to give a statement that night? No. Um, we actually, so that happened on a Saturday morning at 3.50 a.m. Um, we did not give our statement to the DCI until Thursday. Okay. A lot of agencies were not this way. Dallas has always been, I don't know what they're doing now, but after shootings before, they were talking to you that night. Right. And and they, they found out that there's so much going on with the adrenaline dumps about the recollection mm-hmm. specifically. Right. And, and what your body's doing to yourself and the brain's doing to your body and stuff with, like Kent was talking about, that now the standard around most of the country is 72 hours minimum before you, you start giving witness statements. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, that is that is a good benefit because it's it's funny having been there. And then you have conversations, and all of a sudden you remember little things, like the deal with your foot on the brake. Right. It's amazing how, how you just don't realize that stuff while you're doing it. And talking with Bob Gorski, he kind of said that's he got us the, the 72 hours, you know, where our, our investigators now understand that we're not going to talk before we get a couple of sleep cycles in. And, and actually, the video is a big deal for us. We get to, to preview our videos before we make a statement because, again, the brain does some crazy things, right? I mean, the it gives you that super tunnel focus and the auditory exclusion and all that stuff goes on. And they want you to say what happened. Well, this is what happened in my mind, but here's what really happened. And now I can put those two together. I think that that does a lot to keep officers from getting in trouble for saying something that day. And then realizing later on, Hey, that's not really what happened, but that's what I've already said. And now you're torn between, do I say, Hey, I made a mistake in my recollection or do I stick to what I said initially, knowing that there's something else to it? You know, that, that's a weird place to be in when you're, when you're already worried about what's going on. You know, in that auditory exclusion, I'd heard about it, but... It's crazy, isn't it? It is. Uh, you know, if you go to the range and you shoot... I shot eight times and Blair shot four. Um, if you go to the range and you shoot eight rounds with your nine millimeter, your ears are ringing. Yeah. I don't remember a single shot. I don't remember hearing anything. Did you know that night how many rounds you fired? I did. Did they ask you? Um, they did. Um, actually, my actually my partner Blair actually asked me, and I I told her I didn't want to say because I wasn't positive, but right. I knew in my head approximately what, and I think I was one off. Yeah, usually shooters they'll say a number half of what they shot. Yeah, about right. three rounds. Next, you know, seven eight rounds are fired. The the other thing I'm going to ask you, I used to every when I was teaching the SWAT stuff for fifteen years. The questions I would always ask people in the classroom is, do you remember seeing your sights? I do. Um, Good. And I've talked about that with, with my therapist, you know. Um, I, I can remember the front sight. I Good. can remember the front sight of my pistol. And, you know, and I'm not a gun guy. You know, I'm, I, I know how to shoot, and I know how to shoot well, but I'm not a gun guy. And, and But I do remember specifically Good. 
looking down that. Because the, the one thing, the distance, and you're well within that lethal distance, seven yards. So right. usually the distance, if you're closer up, guys will just point and, and, and blast, you know, point and pray type stuff. Um, the more distance you have, the more they tend to focus on sites. It's a security thing, again, mm-hmm. psychological thing, or a little bit of cover generally helps in something like that. So good for you for picking up your sites for something like that. Yeah. You know, and the other thing, you talk about the mind and, and recall, you know, recalling stuff. Um, we So the third officer on scene was actually Blair's fiance, who mm. they've now, they were married a couple months later. Um, so he was the, the third officer on scene, and we were out with them within the week after the shooting, and we were talking, and, and Blair had made some comment about looking down and seeing blood on her hands, and I was like, well, why'd you have blood on your hands? And she's like, because I handcuffed the guy. I said, no, you didn't. You know, such and such did. She goes, no, I put the handcuffs on him. And I looked at her husband, Paul, and she goes, I used his handcuffs. I looked at Paul, and Paul shook his head yes. I was like, no, you didn't. And then I got to watch my body cam and the car cam, and I was like, I'll be damned. She did put the yeah. handcuffs on him. You know, I don't remember that at all. Um, I remember her going up there, but I don't remember her putting the cuffs on him. It's wild, man. The brain so, is, is fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Your, your brain's like a s- slice of Swiss cheese and all those holes, and then you can try to put in – you can make yourself remember or think you can remember certain things. Right. Then you go back and watch the body cam and go, oh, God, I don't even remember dodging to my left, you know, or, or, or taking this position. Right. So when you, you're home and you're off and you're processing everything, you – you, you know, you and I have, we've had an interesting relationship and, and, and I've actually, I've actually had, I don't know where this is going. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we should probably, Steve, leave. don't, Steve, <laughs> don't leave. In the Please don't leave. leave. <laughs> yeah. So I, doing this podcast, I, I have, I have met some really good people, civilian and, and police and also firefighters have reached out since I've been doing this. I think we first started in August of 20, uh, 2021 and we've been cranking these out. And it's it's stressful and it's fun and it, it's sad and it's exciting, but the best part for me is hearing from people, complete strangers that that I don't know from across the country from Cedar Rapids, Iowa to, uh, gosh, Oklahoma, California, Florida, New York, uh, and also uh, people that are non-police, people that may not have uh, really appreciated the police. As much, I get a lot of messages like that saying I've you know never considered this of what y'all go through on a daily basis. That means a lot, and that kind of makes me proud, and also makes me happy that I actually named this thing Bridging uh, the Divide. So you reach out to me, um, and you you just sit, kind of told me you you had a uh, you know you you stumbled on our podcast and you started listening and. You were you growing up as a young officer, watched Dallas SWAT, and something spoke to you on this podcast and, and helped prepare you to perform better and also help with the recovery after from something you might have heard from somebody. Can yeah. you kind of talk about that? You know, I I was really seeking out a uh, podcast on, on leadership stuff, and, and whether it be police leadership or just leadership in general. And honestly, you're at an advertisement or something on, kept popping up on Instagram for, for ATO. And so I, I just saved it and didn't, didn't really think much of it. And then 
one day I was like, ah, you know, I'll check it out, see what it is. And I saw Misty's name on there and I recognized her name from, from TV. And so I was like, well, I'll give that a shot and listen to it. And yeah, you know, I, the episodes that I listened to, so this was in the, about this, you know, about February or so of, of 22. So mm-hmm. February, March. And so you guys had already had a bunch of episodes out, mm-hmm. but just listening to the, the leadership that is presented down here at Dallas PD is pretty remarkable and some of the people that were speaking but then listening to people talk about their critical incidents and how they got through them and um you know whether it was through counseling or or therapy and emdr whatever it might be or just talking about it and, you know and you got guys like you know, like matt baines and, and and everything that are talking about that stuff and then you know it's powerful and i think that that helped me when this moment hit to recognize that, you know, this is not normal to feel the way I felt. The actual, the actual shooting and then what happened after, because we, we've, we've, we do things somewhat by design. Usually we throw spaghetti against the wall and see what sticks, but we have, we have professionals on like Dottie and Dr. T and Tanya Glenn. Right. And because we want, we want to educate and a lot of its education. It, uh, you know, like I said, I always say the mission is of this podcast is to motivate, inspire, uh, educate. And at the very least you have a, a cool ass cop story <laughs> or, or uh, the, to be entertained, or you, maybe you'll get a couple of chuckles through, throughout the uh, episode uh, or punch your steering wheel and disgust, whatever. But we want to educate officers and civilians and firefighters, military, because critical incidents, you know they affect everybody differently, but there are also similarities that uh, that go on in your mind, and and I guess you had, have you did you at that point did you hear any of like the uh, doctors that we've had on? Yeah, at, at that point I'd already listened to Tanya um, and Doctor T and the different things that they spoke of, and like okay, I'm I'm living this right now, and I'm I'm doing this, and um, we're mandated at, at Cedar Rapids we have to go to one therapy session uh, post shooting. Um, and what was that like? I, I had a history with going to to therapy, um, before, but this was a new therapist. And so, um, it was, it was pretty powerful, but we talked about EMDR because I'd heard Tanya talk about, I'd never heard of EMDR until Tanya's episode. So I did some research on that and I guess... You know, I, I asked this therapist, her name is Stephanie Halverson, and I, I asked Stephanie, I'm like, you know, can, is this something we can do? And she's like, absolutely. Are you open to it? Because she goes, a lot of cops aren't, because it's it's a voodoo mind trick, you know, and, and <laughs> there's no other way to, to describe it. And she's like, if you're open to it, we'll do it. And so we did. Now, do you, you said you've gone to a therapist previously. Yeah. Do you feel like it would have been more beneficial to go back to that same therapist or to have a relationship with the, the new therapist before you, you had a critical incident? So the therapist I had seen, she had left her practice in the fall of 21. And so, um, so she was gone and, and she was, she was fantastic. Um, and she'd give me the name of another therapist to, to try if I ever needed anything. And so it was the like late spring of 22, I was like, well, maybe a little maintenance. I'll go to that therapist. And I went to her and, you know, just the connection just really wasn't there with her. Ironically, though, I had, I had already had a scheduled appointment for, 
that for the Monday after my shooting. So I went in to that therapy appointment and told her what happened, you know, and I'm, I'm crying and she's getting all teary eyed. And I walked out of there and I thought there's no way in heck. I mean, she's a great person and a great therapist, but I'm like, there's no way in heck she's going to be able to help me through this. And I mean, I knew it right then and there. And, you know, I know that Dr. T talks about cultural competency. That's huge, isn't it? It is huge. And I thought there's no way this gal is going to help me get through this. And so I didn't know where to go and, and, and who to talk to at that point. We do have a couple that our police department, you know, sources out to. And I called the one and left a voicemail and I didn't hear anything back for a little while. And so then I called Stephanie and left her a voicemail and within like two hours she called me. And so, um, so I was able to go to her and yeah, she's been a godsend. No, it's, it's, it's really weird having Steve here and I'll, I'll go ahead and, and open up just a little bit if you don't mind. Should I leave? No, I'd, I'd, oh. I'd love you to be here cause I want you to, to tell her cause I'm not sure if she listens to every one of these episodes, but, um, I'd been on the department for 19 years at the point where I decided I still probably needed to go see a therapist and it wasn't a critical incident. It wasn't anything. It was just one of those, Hey, probably need a little bit of maintenance, right? Like I don't want to get to the point where, Oh God, I need a therapist and not know anybody and not have experienced it before. And so I jumped on our ATO website. I knew about the confidential counseling. I was looking at it. I probably jumped on the website six times before I actually filled out all the paperwork in its entirety. I'd do it and then I wouldn't. And then I'd talk to people about, Hey, I probably need to go see a therapist or maybe, you know, whatever. And I was back and forth and back and forth. And then Steve and his wife came on the podcast before I was a part of it. And I heard the episode and I was like, that's who I can talk to. Mm -hmm. And so after listening to Dottie and understanding that she had done this job previously and not just, you know, walked through it, you know, a lot of people can, can say they're a police officer, but she was doing some pretty heavy stuff. So uh, I was like, that's, I can, I can go talk to her. And I did. And it was one of those where we sat down for an hour the first time. And she was like, I'd really think you would benefit from EMDR. And I was like, let's get it on <laughs> like yeah, no question. Yeah. And it's, it, it's exactly like you said, it's a voodoo mind trick, man. It, it's, it's insane how it just fixes everything for you quickly. And I didn't, Blair was going to go to see Stephanie. And so she actually recommended her too. And so I was like, and I, I didn't know how that was going to work. I didn't know if that was a good idea that, you know, my partner from the shooting is going to go see this therapist and I'm going to go see this therapist. And, but then the more I thought about it, I thought, you know, it's probably not a bad deal because Stephanie's going to hear stuff that Blair tells her, and then she's going to hear something similar, if not the same thing that I tell her. And, and maybe something I say is going to help Blair, you know, if she relays it and, and vice versa. Um, and I'm, I'm just glad I did. It was, yeah, it's and that, been good. That cultural competency. I, I love that phrase. And I love the fact that we actually have therapists that are culturally competent that can help you with things that you're going through because they've either been through it themselves or they've talked to enough people to where they have that understanding because you really feel like, as a police officer going to talk to just any therapist, you could kind of be looked at as, as something different, you right. know, but when you have people who understand it, it makes it so much more inviting and so much more welcoming to go in there and actually do it. And I, I push it to everybody that I talk to now. I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of just having a relationship with a therapist for not, it, not that you need it right this second, but if I go through something else and, and it triggers something, I know I can go talk to that person. I'm not going to be weird about it at that point, you know? So, I think establishing those relationships is huge. I've, I've told our wellness unit, you know, chief Ramirez, I think we should mandate it for, for younger officers, you know, start with the Academy of, Hey, you need to go talk to a therapist like quarterly, 
biannually something to where you have that relationship already and you don't just walk into something. No, I, I agree. I, I, it, it becomes an issue when you start mandating officers to go talk to somebody. It, it does, but if you don't, then they don't take that step. You know, in it initially, it would be weird, right? It'd be like, hey, why are we doing this? But once you start to do it, it's just like mandating body-worn cameras. Like, I promise you, if you didn't make them do it, nobody would have done it. And if you talk to 90% of us now, I'm not working again without one. Right. So it, it would have the pushback. A lot of people would say, hey, I don't want to do it. But once they do it, I think the benefit is so huge that they would say, okay, yeah, now it makes sense. And then after a year or two, that's just part of our culture. And that's how you change cultures, by, by making those decisions for people when they're not going to make them themselves. And I think we've seen in police work that we're not open to a whole lot of change and doing things different unless we're mandated. Well, and there's two things cops hate, and that's change and when things don't change. Yeah, so. the way things are and the way things are going to be, yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, it's funny, back when I was on the street and even after that, it and it's something that's missing today. A real good friend of mine was Chicago PD. He was um, assistant commander on their SWAT team. And he said, you know, the thing is, therapy has become so important now because we don't have those those impromptu type therapies, which was going to the bar, sitting with a guy. Choir practice. Yeah, that's it, choir practice, and talking about things. And it, it just it became an inadvertent counseling session. But just being able to talk about it with the guys that knew, and then, of course, it would always be a side conversation later and stuff like that. But they don't do that. Police don't do that anymore. And so it's it's kind of driven the need for more constructive, more, uh, well, deliberate type stuff to where you're saying, hey, you got to go do this. When After each one of the shootings I was in, I had to go talk to our, our doc, Dr. Saul Navia. And it, you, I, first time I get in there, scared shitless. I'm like, he's going to find out I'm crazy, even though Dottie told me I wasn't, I swear. <laughs> but And I get in there, and it's like, eh, so what's going on in the department now? Just talking to them. I'm like, nothing. Uh, you know, Okay. And then the, it got to the point, the second, third one, it was like, what's going on in the department? And they got a little more personal. He's like, are you still able to get an erection? I'm like, right here? And he's like, no. But and I was he, about to ask you that, too. No, stop. <laughs> but, I mean, it was one of those things. He, he was, I didn't realize that he was actually observing me and the way I was sitting there and the way I conducted myself. And that was all part of the assessment. And he didn't want, to, didn't want me to feel like it, I was being interrogated. And it was perfect. It was perfect. But, um, you know, that's it. I, I was the better person for it. So I think, you know, the very toward the very end of my first appointment with Stephanie and she, you know, she made it very clear that this is a safe place. And obviously there's, you know, hippos in there, but this, this doesn't leave here. Yeah. And from prior experience, I knew that, you know, if I'm not honest with her, then I'm not being honest with myself and I'm not going to get any better and I'm not going to get past this. And that's, as a cop, we don't trust anybody already, right? No. So that's why I say you have to establish that relationship ahead of time. And I think that having that relationship is going to make it so much easier and so much more beneficial to actually go see a therapist when you actually need one. Right. Well, when Kent reached out, he, this is the first time I have actually, I actually told uh, Steve, and I didn't mention the name, that, that somebody reached out and said because of their episode – they decided to go see Dottie, but I've never, I never told Steve who it was. And now you just kind of said that. And that was really, that meant a lot to me, Kent, uh, whenever you, when you, uh, sent me that text message, I was like, wow. And I've, I, 
I, like I said, I, I sent it to Dottie because that mean that's that is rewarding for Dottie to hear too, as well as Steve to hear that what they said, something in there, what they said struck you and resonated with you and wanted you to. We you reached out for help, so that means a lot. And how long did it take you to? I mean, years of your life to get. Yeah, I I mentioned it uh, mm-hmm. like nineteen years of of police work, and then it took me about six months of talking about actually going to to do it. And you know, the forms I hate filling out forms. I I don't understand why we still have to fill out forms over and over again. So I would start and then stop. You know, I'd be three pages in. I'm like, I'm not doing four pages. You know, forget that. And then finally, I just woke up and I was like, hey, like like you said, I'm not going to get better by not doing it. Right. So let's go ahead and just knock it out and and do that. When when Matt uh, when whenever I got your email and it was it was it was probably the best email that I've ever gotten when it comes to this this is long it, it was long but it was great email and everybody uh, saw it was like oh my gosh this is this is amazing and it was amazing because of how it happened and of you reaching out all the way 800 miles away to here in Dallas Texas to uh, you're sending an email to uh, a foundation and it's from a podcast and and we all kind of sit around and i kind of think i'm a just a knucklehead in here doing something playing around and for that to hear that something we may have said impacted you and and help you survive something physically and mentally that means a lot i just want you to know that and whenever you sent that email what what were you thinking i mean whenever you just kind of just because i got gratitude I, I, i when i read the email i thought Wow, this this guy is really uh, just showing gratitude to what we're doing down here. Yeah, for sure. I, you know, I don't know if I can put it into words. To be honest with you, you know, it, and I and I can't pinpoint one particular episode either. That that was my holy crap moment. You know, they were all pretty impactful. And yeah, it was very. There was a lot of gratitude and. The fact that cops are getting out there and and putting this out there, and it's you're you're putting yourself out there to others to to try and make that change and to try and do away with that stigma. And again, you know, you get badass Steve Claggett sitting yeah. here. You know, <laughs> do it. You're like a ringleader here. <laughs> yeah. Stop that. You know, he's putting himself out there, and you know, I've, I've recently met another guy who um, he's retired from uh, Phoenix, I believe it is Phoenix or Mesa, and you know, the same thing, big SWAT guy. And, you know, he's being very vulnerable. And that, that, that V word is something that gets brought up a lot in my therapy sessions. And, and it, to be a cop and to express vulnerability is huge mm-hmm. because it, you don't ever want to be vulnerable as, as a police officer. Now we, it's a survival mechanism to not be, but then, to recover for yourself, not recover as Matt, not Matt the officer. You have to be vulnerable and, and um, with yourself and with your your spouse and then your your counselor. You you could, I like what you said. You you're not being honest with yourself if you're not really talking to your counselor or therapist. I mean, you a therapist is only as good as what they're getting from you. Right. And if you're lying to them or you're giving them a watered down version of something that's going on or or you know an incorrect. Pers- perspective you're they're not going to be able to help you so matt you 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 know you emailed me and we went back and forth and i think i actually text you first and then i called you and we had we had a long conversation we talked for like 
hell on 30 45 minutes and it was a good conversation um and i then you while during that conversation we kind of talked about some some episodes and some people we've had on that kind of they spoke to you through their episode so i got i got good old baines and uh chief schultz tina to give you a call because she's a you know she's from iowa too can you kind of tell me the reason i did that too is the wellness unit was just getting its legs on it. We were just, it was just a, a concept at that point, but the wellness checkpoints were, they were going to be the kind of the foundation. And what it is is basically leaders and formal leaders reaching out to peers to kind of just check on them. And, you know, and, and cause talking peer to peer, you're probably going to be a little bit more confident than talking to Rick from HR that's calling you. Right. right? So, Baines and Tina reached out. Can you talk about that? How that, how that went for you? Um, yeah, I was blown away by Matt and his in his candor and um, telling me, you know, about how how he went through things and and you know how he'd been through three OASs and you know and at, at the very end, I thought it was pretty cool because he's like, you know, this is my number. If you need anything, if your wife needs anything, have your wife call my wife because unfortunately, I've made her a professional at this. And so he said, you know, just shoot and call anytime. And that just, that meant a lot, especially never meeting the guy before in my life. And yet he's willing to reach out and, and, and give that up. Um, and I think it was about four hours later, I got a phone call and it said, <laughs> Tina Schultz. You got inundated. You know, with- yeah. Something Texas. And I was like, man, I don't, okay. You know, so I'm getting a, a chief from Dallas PD to call me and, and she was the same thing. Just as, as welcoming and, and. You know, heard a, heard a local Iowa guy. You know, got into some stuff, and she was she was awesome. Yeah, they 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 both texted and said that they had talked to you. I didn't know. I didn't. I didn't really. We didn't never talk about how it went or what was said or anything. But uh, but I, I appreciated them reaching out and, and and Tina, y'all, she still reaches out occasionally. Yeah, she does. I you know uh, get a happy Thanksgiving text and you know and and she even you know give give your number to Blair. You know, or give my number to Blair, and, and if she needs anything, she can reach out and call me, and, and so I did. I don't, I don't know if Blair's ever reached out to her or not, mm-hmm. but just the fact that she was willing to do that, never meeting either one of us, just speaks volumes of, of who they are as leaders. Yeah, and that, and that really is why I I have the people that I get on, that come on here is, it's I don't get just anybody to come on. I, it, it's somebody that is high character, and somebody that I like, and I know that they they're here for other people and they're good people. Right. And you know, they, and, and I have a variety of folks and, and topics, but I don't have just anybody on here. So Tina and Matt, they're some of my favorite people. And it's not, there's no coincidence that Matt has Baines has been in several episodes. His soothing country ass voice is, <laughs> is, uh, is always a bonus. So, um, and it's peer to peer. It's peer. That is peer support one on one. That is a peer reaching out to check on another peer. But just because you're 800 miles away, we're all still in the same profession, and that's what it's about. You don't have to work for the same agency. You don't have to know somebody. You have a little insight on them. They didn't know you, but you knew a little bit about them just because of this podcast. Just a sliver of them, you know, a sliver yeah. of their life and their story. So. We, you and I have been going back and forth, texting and emailing for months, uh, and just uh, touch base or to say hi. And then you kind of, you know, 
you sent me a very impactful email and it had an attachment and of a story that you wrote. It was called the Rolodex. Can you, can you kind of explain where that came from? That story came from and, uh, and what it means, what it meant to you when you wrote it and what is, what it symbolizes. And how that all started, um, was in April of 2015. I was in investigations and I was actually coaching high school soccer at the time too. And that afternoon I left work. I had, we had an away game. And so my Lieutenant and I had a little interaction on the way out and I told him, I'm like, Hey, you don't call me. I'll call you, you know, type thing. And he's like, well, I'll, I'll call you if we have a murder. And that was kind of the, that was our last parting words. And I get to the soccer game and we're, 25 miles away or so and and I always had my phone on vibrate for whatever reason I didn't I didn't have the sound off and I'm out warming up our goalkeepers and one of the girls is yelling at me she's like coach your phone's ringing your phone's ringing like it's all right ignore it went on for a little while a few minutes later they're like coach your phone's ringing again so I walked over and grabbed my phone and it said private so I was like I know who this is and it was my lieutenant and he says hey he says I need you to come into work we had a murder and I started laughing because it's been like two and a half hours since he and I just had this, you know, joking back and forth. And, and I was like, okay, sure, you know, whatever, LT. And he's like, no, I'm serious. I need you to come into work. We had a murder. And he said it was at, at the Hy-Vee, which is our big chain grocery store up in Iowa. I was like, well, I rode the bus down here, so I don't know how I'm going to get back. And long story short, I got a ride back from another officer and, and, that was, uh, we had a, there was a young lady, she was 29 years old and she and her seven year old son had gone into the store to go shopping. She had recently broken up with a guy who didn't take it very well and was, was causing her some grief. And she and her son were walking out of the parking or out of the store that day to the parking lot. And she was ambushed by him and she was stabbed 32 times and killed. And it was very, uh, very brutal. I mean, she had stab wounds that were through and through, um, where there were marks in the concrete under her body from the knife that had gone through and chipping the concrete underneath. So it was a very brutal murder. Her seven-year-old son sat and watched the whole thing. Um, they were living not quite a mile away, and he had the bags of groceries in his hands, and he ran all the way home. And they were living with a with another adult couple that kind of took took her in. Uh, Lindsay Donald was her name, and um, he he just walked in the house and he's like, "Well, we're not we're got we're not going to need these tonight or something to that effect." And gave the gave the food to the guy in the house, and he said, "Mom, mom got killed." And so when I got to the scene, Lindsay had already been removed from the scene and everything but you know obviously as a team of investigators and I became the lead investigator on that but as a team we had to put everything together and and part of that was watching the surveillance videos of the of the murder which you know you know damn my luck but hy V had just put in the best HD surveillance system you've ever seen in your life um, and so we get you know I had to watch that video I don't know 30 40 times between the investigation and trial prep and it was just over and over and over again of of him killing her 
what that did though, as time went on, that was April 15, but it's all of a sudden, like in the summer of 2015, like I'd start to get flashbacks or images of shit that happened in my career. And I should have prefaced this by saying that, you know, my, my story's got inadequacies in, in comparison to stuff you've been through or stuff oh. you've been through. And, but in the volume, you know, the stuff that you've seen the, and the stuff you've seen and, and the stuff I've seen in the volume of it, the thing that got me that threw me off the most was that I'd gone this far in my career and I'd been able to handle everything. And then all of a sudden one day I wake up and I'm like, why am I remembering this suicide from 1997? Why am I remembering this this female we found dead in her in her uh, house from 1999? You know, and these things just kept flipping around in my head, and that's kind of how I equated it to the Rolodex: is that these images would flip around, and they would either go super fast or they'd go super slow, and and I dealt with this for almost a year, and it was just and it was daily. Sometimes you know it'd just be a flash, and sometimes it'd be you know hours that i think about this stuff anything kick it off or was it just <laughs> that was natural that, occurring no that was a thing it was there'd be nothing you know i could just be driving down the road and and it just start popping into my head so obviously if there were triggers and you know those things would kick it off too right. but that was the the kicker was just driving down the road and that stuff would happen or sitting at home um and then yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd wake up, I'd have, you know, night sweats, night terrors. I'd get up and I'd walk around the house, you know, for an hour, two hours, and eventually, get my, you know, just fall back asleep because I wore myself out, you know. Um, and then in the summer of 2016, uh, we, Jen and I were out for supper one night, and I uh, ran into an investigator that works for the Syracuse Police Department, Tracy Johnson, and we ran into Tracy and her husband, and we sat down, and we were talking to them. And somehow, Jen and Tracy got to talking about work, and something was said about the Lindsay's murder. And Tracy looked at me, and she's like, you ever gone to talk to a therapist? I'm like, no. Just about that quick. I'm not, that's, that's not me. I'm not going to go do that. And Tracy told me her story about how, you know, she had to go talk to a therapist, and she didn't want to. She was mandated to, and she didn't want to, and she felt sorry for that therapist because she's like, I was the grumpy cop that was sitting there and didn't want to be there. But some time went by, and and um, the Rolodex just kept going. I mean, it just didn't stop. And it was a few weeks had gone by, and I was sitting at home one night, and Jen had gotten home from work, and I'd basically just been sitting in the pool all afternoon. It was a nice summer day in Iowa, and you know, and drinking beer and we had a little argument back and forth and she said, you know, maybe, maybe you do need to go get help. And I was like, well, think about it. And it was the next day I made a phone call to our EAP therapy and I went to that appointment. Um, her name was Lisa and met with Lisa and I thought, Oh, this is going to be, you know, like a three appointment deal, three or four appointments. We'll be done. I'll be cured. I'll be fixed. And that ended up being a five year repeated visits with her. But there were, there were some times in there, though, where, like I said before, like I wasn't honest with Lisa. And so I wasn't, I wasn't getting what I should have got out of that. Um, and a lot of that came to head around the spring of 18, I think it was. But in August of 2016, um, I got called into work one night for a, for a suicide 
of a 16 year old girl. And this was the day after our oldest daughter had turned 16. And it was, you know, it was one of those deals where the mom, and it was just a few blocks from her house too. It was only about three or four blocks from her house. And the mom had said the daughter, she and the daughter were fighting and the daughter's like, I'm going to go kill myself. And she stormed off and she did. She went out and hanged herself in the garage. And so we dealt with that that night and I got home and, you know, I, I went to the, it was maybe midnight and I went to the, to the one place where I knew I, I could get some, you know, some relief and that was straight to the beer fridge in the garage, you know, and, uh, I don't know, they must have had a sale on tall boy Coors lights cause seemed to have a lot of them that night but uh i didn't the rolodex had kicked in you know during this investigation and and as i got home and of course that didn't help and you get to a point where you know you, you want to make it go away and you want to make it stop and i didn't know how i didn't have the tools i mean i've been seeing lisa and going to lisa but it, it was it was beyond that it was you know and it's like, how do, how do I do this? How do I make that go away? And the answer, unfortunately, was sitting in the appendix carry in my holster. You know? And so I, you know, I, pulled, I pulled my Glock out, and, and I sat there, and I looked at it, and I stared at it. And I'm not saying suicide was the answer, and I'm not saying it was, it was an option, but it definitely was not off the table that night. And, you know, I, I looked at that gun pretty intently for a long time. And... You know, and, and, and intently enough where you can see the reflection from my fluorescent work light in my garage off the tip of that 40 cal bullet, and it's not something I ever want to look at again. And it's not something I ever want to get to a point in my life again where I'm at. And so that's why it's, you know, kind of a coming to Jesus moment with the therapist and myself and being being real and being honest. Um, that night, it was about 2.15 in the morning, and I... And I put it away and I'm like, my oh, God, I got to be done and put it away. And I called Lisa's desk phone and I just left her a message and, and said, Hey, it's Matt. You know, it's two fifteen. Call me, call me tomorrow. And the next morning about eight 15, we're sitting in our roll call. And I, and again, I was in investigations. We had a roll call every morning and, and, uh, my phone rang and I saw it was Lisa and I answered the phone and She's like, are you okay? I said, nope. She's like, you be here in a half hour? I'm like, yep. <laughs> went to my lieutenant, told him I'd be back, and and uh, I went I went and saw her. And, you know, and, and she was upset because she's like, I honestly, God, didn't think you were going to answer your phone. And I didn't learn that for, I guess, that was about a year later because I never told her how, how things went that night I just told her I'd had a bad night I told her I'd gone to this girl's suicide but again I wasn't honest I didn't tell her I sat there in my garage and and drank and and sat there and looked down the barrel of my gun and and where things were at I just wasn't honest with her and I think it was about the spring of 18 I watched a documentary and it was called uh, Code 9 Officer Needs Assistance and I watched that and I was by myself at home it hit. It hit hard. And I kept telling Jen that she needed to watch it. And she, you know, and, and I came, I came home one night. I was gone. I came home and she was down in our basement and television was going. So I figured she'd been on the treadmill or working out or doing something. And I walked in the room and she's sitting in the middle of the floor and she's just sobbing. 
and she's got that documentary going on the TV and she looked up at me and she's like, this is you. Every one of these people are you. And, um, I recommended to Lisa that she watch it as well. And she did. And when I got in there at that point, I knew it was time to come clean. And I told her about that night in my garage and she looked at me and she goes, I know. And she said, that's why I was afraid you weren't going to answer your phone the next morning. She goes, I already knew. It was just, at that point, we, you know, it was time, it was, I was honest with her. I was being honest with me. And it was time to, to get to work to make sure that that Rolodex, you know, we could control it and we could stop it because it just, otherwise it was just nonstop. So what was it in therapy that actually helped put that away? You know, we didn't do EMDR with Lisa didn't do that, but you know, we just did a lot of mindfulness stuff and, and, and breathing and recognizing when things were getting out of hand. And so when that, that thing would start to kick off, you know, I do the, the square breathing techniques, you know, or the, um, you know, the mindfulness meditation thing and finding a place. And this is like for the time, you know, at that time I was coaching soccer and that was my happy place. You know, like I left work to go coach soccer you would think going around being a bunch of uh, dramatic 16-year-old girls, uh, that was my relief. You know, that was, that was nothing. I could handle that. And so, you know, the, the meditation for me was, you know, feeling the grass, seeing the field, listening to the girls, and believe it or not, smelling those stinky-ass cleats and, and <laughs> shin guards. But that stuff put me back into check and got me back into reality. So, but it was, it was a lot of that and it was, it was a lot of work. Why do you think you were hesitant to be honest for so long? Cause we're cops. That was, that was my biggest fear is we're cops and, and that stigma and, and you're going to get to a point where it, is it going to get back to my boss that I sat there in my garage that night and drank and, and again, I'm not, it, it wasn't off the table, you know? finger was never on the trigger gun wasn't in my mouth but it wasn't off the table and so if i'm honest about that and it gets back to my bosses what does that happen you know what does that do to me what does that do to my career and that's valid concerns i mean because you you've seen it happen you know you've, you've heard about officers that do come forward and they're ostracized and they're disciplined behind it when basically you're saying hey i need some help well and and you know i'll tell you Prior to me leaving Marion PD, there was there was an officer who was going through some stuff, and he had a breakdown, and he went and got help. And <laughs> I kid you not, man, he got his badge gone, his gun gone, and he got locked out of the PD. He wasn't allowed to come back to the PD. In fact, they had two they had a sergeant and a lieutenant clean his office out for him when it was time because he eventually was going to medical out. They cleaned his office out for him. So what that set the tone for every officer in that department of what's going to happen to you. Granted, we've got a new administration, a new chief now, so that's that's done. I hope, but it still set set the sent the message. No, and I, I think that's common everywhere because we've had similar things happen here in Dallas. You know, with with previous administrations where they've they've basically done the exact same thing, locked them out. We get bulletins about you know officer safety about other officers and and that's that's got to be the worst way to handle that i don't mm-hmm. i don't know who authorized that and who was like that that sounds like a great idea 
um, because it's a horrible idea. Right. But no, your 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 concerns are valid. You know, obviously we've we've been through that and we've seen it. So it's it's interesting to me that you went through the therapy that long and then one day you were just like, hey, like, okay, now it's time to to do this for real. Yeah, it was. I mean, it had almost been two years of therapy when I finally was like, all right, this is this has got to happen because otherwise I'm just going to keep doing this shit all the time and it's not. I'm not going to get better. Where's the Rolodex now? How is it? How is it flipping over now? Or is it come back? You know what? It hasn't. I've I've done really good with it. Um, it's been a long time. And and that's something that Stephanie and I address quite often and the question that's asked. And, um, you know, it's just not there. And, I'm I, again, I'm able to jump in front of it and, and, and if I even remotely feel like you know, that's going to happen again. You know, it's, it is, you know, knock on wood, 100% control. Because now you're equipped with weapons to battle it. Absolutely. What would you say to, uh, there, there's a lot of people out here that aren't, aren't even first responders that are, that are listening to this. What would you tell them? I mean, what kind of advice would you tell them to come forward and to eliminate their own Rolodex? Because we all have them. It's a great question because what works for me isn't going to work for you or, or her. Or, but if you don't give that therapy a shot, you're never going to know. And if, and if Tracy wouldn't have told me her story that night, I would have never went. You know, a week or two later when, when Jen and I get in a little argument and, and I realized maybe Tracy's right. Maybe, maybe I should go get some help. But... If if you don't take that extra step, then how are you going to know? And like, like my partner Blair is a huge um, sports nut, you know. And she says, you know, like was it Michael Jordan that says you, you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. <laughs> and so if you don't take that shot and go into a therapist, but there again, you've got to find that one that's that works for you. And you know, obviously, I knew two days after my shooting when I met with that therapist that that relationship was not going to work. And I felt bad calling her and breaking that off and saying, hey, but, you know, I owe it to me and I owe it to, to my family that all I'm going to do is just go back through the motions again if I, if I don't have that connection with somebody. Right. Hey, Matt, go back to the Rolodex. You just kind of touched on a little bit. Was it just images that you were experiencing? No. Um, you know, Steve, it started off with images, but then it got to the point where, you know, you could – you could smell the gunpowder. You could smell the the metallic, or I'm sorry, you could taste the the metallic taste of blood. You yeah. know, um, the sounds. You know, I'd, I, you know, I can still I can still hear the the, the horn blaring from a double fatality accident. Two teenagers were killed. I mean, I can still hear that horn. And, and so for me to, I guess for me to say that the Rolodex has gone away, it hasn't gone away, but I know how to control, yeah. and I and I have got the tools to deal with it. So thinking about that doesn't affect me like it used to um but no it's the sights the sounds the smells all of it was there and i think that's what made it the worst so your negative coping skills made things better temporarily and then got worse or i mean the drinking yeah it just it just masked it all you know it was the problem was still there in the morning and i you know i don't want to 
paint myself out to be, you know, a raging alcoholic that was drinking because I, you know, that wasn't the case. It was just, if I got home and I was going to have a beer, then I was going to have six beers right? because of, of what went on. Um, but that didn't, you know, that wasn't the focus of my life either, but it was what I used at the time. Right. And then the, the positive scoping, coping skills here, the, the breathing techniques, mm-hmm. what are some of the other ones that, um, you know, obviously with, uh, the EMDR with, with, uh, Stephanie that I'm doing now right. has been huge. Can, can you break that down into simple terms what that is? EMDR? Because my wife gave me an, an example of what it is, so I can read that, but I'd it's rather hear, voodoo. hear from you. That's what it is. It is voodoo. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the example of, of how it helps me. I mean, there was an image I had from my shooting that I just could not get rid of, mm-hmm. and it was front and center every time. And I could, talk, I could tell my story, and I could sit here and tell my story, and when I got to that moment, like, I, I'd lose it. Like, I'd just start crying. And so Stephanie asked me, she's like, you know, are you open to this? I'm like, yeah, let's, you know, give it a shot. And so she uses the little buzzy things that go in your hands and, you know, close your eyes. And I want you to tell, tell me your story. When you get to that point, you know, let me know. And she knew because my eyes are closed and I'm telling the story. And I just got tears just running out of my, my, my eyes. And so, you know, we get, she turned on the little buzzy things and, you know, your eyes track the back and forth back and forth for 30 seconds or so and she got done you know she's like take a deep breath open your eyes tell me what you see and i'm like i see a door like i don't know what do you want what do you want well, let's talk about your image and and this and all and i'm like it's gone she's like what do you mean it's gone i'm like like it's gone like i cannot picture that image anymore and it was just it was amazing to this day it's it's so grainy and pixelated that it doesn't affect me that's exactly how I describe it is it, it just took that whole image and it just it's so hard to see it clearly now it's fuzzy yeah you know it's, it's almost like a, a vignette just laid over it and you're like where did it go you know and for me it was so it was so almost fake anyway because for me it was when he pointed that shotgun at me the end of that shotgun looked like you know like a Bugs Bunny you know like two bowling balls huge it just looked massive and that's that's what got me every time and it's yeah it's just gone i don't it's crazy good anything else any other techniques i know you're i'm assuming you're an athlete play um, soccer a lot uh no i really didn't, no i okay. just, just fell like in love with the game those who can got those roped who into coach. coaching my daughter when she was young and yeah still doing it no i'm not i resigned okay. this last year okay so it was nine years i two high schools and I uh, actually did three years at a, at co college in Cedar Rapids. Nice. So with the women's program, yeah. um, you know, one of the, one of the big things is just as far as techniques is, you know, talking about it and, right. and being vulnerable. And obviously here I am today and I wouldn't have, you know, I wouldn't have been here talking about this in a, in a public setting had that OIS happen. If that, if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't be here. But I also wouldn't be here because of Stephanie. Before we get too far off that, I want to hear what your wife gave you. Yeah. Uh, EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprogramming. Basically, just takes an emotion that you have, and through the the light, and I don't think she uses the buzzer thing, but through that, it draws the, the memory to your forefront and then desensitizes it, kind of pushes it back to the back of your brain. And that's, that's the knucklehead version because she gave me the knucklehead version because that's all I can remember. But basically it just takes, it takes the juice out of the, 
out of the, the, the bad part. Yeah, trauma lives in short-term memory, and, and that's... I did not know that. Yeah, so and basically what you're doing is you're putting it in your long-term memory, and that's that's why, you know, you're able to recall it all the time yeah. in that short-term memory. And so, um, so yeah, when it goes in that long-term memory, it's just, it's just there and it's gone. She yeah. explained it to me as basically taking something that isn't put away and putting it away. Yeah. So like taking the coat that you walk across the floor every day and, and actually putting it in the closet and hanging it up and all of a sudden it's gone. <laughs> yeah, so, no, that's, that's a, yeah, exactly. Do you, you and Jen, do y'all communi- communicate better now? I'll let her answer that. Okay. Good decision. <laughs> I wow. feel after the shooting happened, um, I was, he was off for two weeks, and then I was on a medical leave like two weeks later. And so we ended up both on um, leave together. So mine was medical, and he was off on duty. And so we were together 24-7, um, for weeks, about six weeks total, but we went from not seeing each other because once he went into and got on at the CRPD, he worked evenings and he worked weekends. And so we didn't see a lot of each other, um, when he transitioned over there and then the shooting happened and then we're together 24 seven and we both laughed. We're like, how is this going to go? <laughs> you know, we're going to go from trauma counseling to marriage counseling real quick. <laughs> But I feel like it actually brought us closer together, wouldn't you say? Yeah, for sure. Um, I've pushed him to do to do the counseling and p- to put the work in, and I've pushed him to show his vul- vulnerability and put it out there to everybody because what we've dealt with over the years, um, and it's it's affected me. It's affected our kids and. Um, there has to be other families that are going through the same things. Now, do you feel like because of what he's gone through recently that it's benefiting the kids and your relationship? I think we're all a lot closer. After the shooting happened, um, like you said, I went to work. I'm in healthcare, and I had patients that had to be seen no matter what. I was the one on call, so I had to kind of get my shit together. I drove to the facility I was working at and I knew my dad was an early riser and I called him and I'm sobbing and then he's like what's going on and I told him and he he's like shit and um I'm like yeah and I said now I have to get my shit together and go into work and um be that care provider to all my patients I was seeing that day and um you know my phone was kind of going crazy too people calling in and checking on me and then I put my hours in and I got home and we both had agreed that morning that um we weren't gonna tell the kids um right away he wanted to wait till I got home from work and we uh sat down at the kitchen table and told the kids what happened and answered all their questions and I mean we didn't know how how it was going to come out on the media. I mean, we're small town, Iowa, you know, it's like sometimes that type of incident like hits the news and, you know, the kids would possibly get text messages before we could actually tell them, but it was, it was really smooth. We um, got the kids there and sat down and spoke with them. And there was a lot of questions, a lot of tears, and we didn't know what to expect. And, 
So we navigated it all together. So before all this, was Matt very open and did he talk to you about things that happened at work? Yeah, Matt tells me a, a quite yeah. a bit of stuff. Now, now, Matt, your turn. Do you actually tell her what happens at work? Um, watered down versions. Good point. Yeah, watered down versions. But I also, yeah, I don't tell her everything. So Joe and I discuss oftentimes when we have guests on their body language. And the entire time you've either shielded your wife or you've been comforting your wife. Mm -hmm. So part of you is shielding her from, from what you see. And that's natural, right? We, right. we don't want to force our trauma onto our, our spouses and our families. But you physically have been blocking her. So there, there is a little bit of that shielding going on. But it's, again, it's a, it's a natural thing because we don't want to take all that, you know, it's already screwed us up a little bit, right? Like, let's not screw up our families too. Yeah. I, I just thought she, he was shielding her from Claggett's sex appeal. But I, I, <laughs> what in the <laughs> hell? Steve, come back. Please number, come back. Number one, that's impossible. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No. I couldn't resist. <laughs> you know, I think that. Way to take a serious topic and shit all over again. <laughs> It breaks the ice the, a little bit. The listeners are used to that. <laughs> no, I think that, yeah, you know, I've done my best to to try and shield them. You know, I'll tell her stories and stuff like that. But, you know, I also I also hate what this job has done to me. Yes. You know, I, I hate what it's done to me. I hate what it's, you know, it made the relationship with my kids tough, you know, growing up because I wasn't there and I was short and I was not the nicest person all the time. And that's because I didn't know how to deal with it. I didn't know how to cope with it. And this therapy definitely has helped, you know, for sure. Um, but there again, you know, if I'm not being honest with her, then I'm not helping our marriage. I'm surely not helping our, you know, our family. And, you know, the other rarity in our life is that we've been married for 25 years this past October in, in law enforcement. Yeah, no, that's a I don't want to say one. that's a unicorn, but it's it's pretty dang close no, sometimes the true unicorn is two cops married yeah. for that <laughs> yeah true and that, that you is. know and us working opposite shifts has probably helped that it does quite help. a bit it does help. no the the kid thing i've got three boys and they're probably the reason i ended up going into to actually talk to somebody because our relationship was getting real rocky i was short-tempered and i was like i they're not bad kids i've got great kids but why am i so frustrated with what's going on with them and if it's not them then it's got to be me and I don't want to be that guy that just one day blows up and, and loses it with my kids for no reason. So they were a huge part of me going then. I totally agree with that. Um, I, there was nights Matt would come home, days, and I'd be like, girls, dad's in a bad mood. Like, stay away from him. Just keep your distance, you know, because, you know, it would end up in an argument or he would – lose his temper a little bit with them and it was just easier to tell them just stay away you know we're gonna go to the parks dad's kind of having a bad day yeah and that bothers you doesn't it matt oh yeah Compl yeah totally no shelby houston came on here and basically said something about if you're not going to go to therapy for yourself go for your kids and i was like man that that struck me right in the heart like I, yeah but that being said you know like yesterday i met um one of the DFD guys and, you know, and he made the comment too, that, 
can, you know, like with alcoholism, you know, he's like, I guarantee you that if I have a guy come up and tell me that I'm going to get sober because of my wife and I'm going to get sober because of my kids, and I'm going to get sober for my family. He goes, that guy's going to fail because he doesn't want to do it for himself. And so, yes, you go to therapy for my wife and my family, but I got to go for myself. And that's where that, that honesty thing came in. And right. that's where, that's really been the hardest thing for me to you know like i said we're cops and you know in god we trust all others are suspects you know it's like we don't trust like anybody that. so we've got to come into the honesty for ourselves or or nobody's going to benefit that means a lot <clears throat> to hear the i mean that that i i just heard that what you got from the, the firefighter that uh, we went to the uh we went and toured a alcohol rehab facility with a group of folks and um some uh, firefighters were there i saw you over there talking to him and man i that's powerful yeah, he he was a good dude. Um, you know, and I, and I think after losing my brother a couple of years ago to alcoholism, you know, I could relate to some of the stories he was telling. I could relate to some of the stories they were telling at that facility and, and how to relate to. So, yeah, but what he said was that was 100% my brother. He didn't want to get sober for himself. Wow. Well, I tell all the guests that that uh, the Zach talents or, or – uh, Anybody else that we we have listened beforehand, and we get them on. Like now that you ha- that you're down here, 800 miles away, you're gonna go back tomorrow. Yep. Um, you have Kent and I cornered here on the the mics. Favorite episode? I don't know. I really don't. I, there are so many that I enjoyed listening to, um, and so many that I I picked up different things on. You know, from Chief Garcia to Chief Foy and, and you know, Bob Owens, that one really struck a chord with me with the leadership when he talked about the um, narcotics officer that was shot and killed on the blue-on-blue shooting. And when he was asked to write up his uh, idea for discipline for the officer that pulled the trigger against the other officer, and he said he recommended no discipline. And I just, when I heard that, like I just sat back and I was like, that guy gets it. Because there's nothing you're going to do discipline-wise that's going to make that officer, you know, that officer's going through more than he'll ever go through in his life. So what what good is a discipline going to do to him? And they've all just struck a chord with me. And they've all been really good. And I've, you know, I've got officers back home that are listening to your podcast. I got a really good friend of mine that, he listened to the first couple, and, and he was like, ah, oh, it's too Dallas-specific, too Dallas-specific. And I was like, really? Is it? I said, because we're going through the same stuff, just on a, you know, a much smaller scale, but we're going through the same stuff. And this podcast is now his favorite podcast. Wow. And What's his name? Uh, Willie Dobbs. Shout out Willie Dobbs. Yeah. Thanks for listening. What could we do better? What could Kent and I do with Danny, Misty? Misty's still uh, helping. Steve, he's... He's been on as uh, he's one of our reoccurring guests, and he's always. I'm the one they well, beat up. I'm yeah, comic that, relief. <laughs> <laughs> what can we do better to better put a better product out for the other listeners? I think just keep pushing the narrative that you're pushing. You know, when you said something to me months ago about coming on, I was like, "There's no way in hell I'm not I'm not going to come tell my story." And because there again, I didn't think my story was significant. And I, I you know, I heard another DFD guy that I talked to yesterday and he said the same thing you've been trying to get him to come on he's like god no nobody wants to hear my story no the reality is is that there are guys that are 
on departments the same size as I am and have probably seen as much or less than what I've seen, but they've been affected. You know, there, we've got an officer in our department that has been through, he's a rookie. Well, he was a rookie. And that guy has seen, he saw more in six months than some officers see in their entire career. And we're talking, he's been to, we had a nightclub shooting. We had three people murdered. Um, we, you know, another, you know, a couple more murders that he went to. The guy's been through a lot. And he was on scene for my shooting. And he, you know, he had a hard time with that because he's, he said he thought I'd been shot. He goes, yeah, I saw you fall back into your car. And he goes, I thought you got shot. I'm like, no, I'm just putting it in park. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and he went and, and he started talking to to somebody. And I did. I, I did. I told him, I was like, you need to go talk to somebody. And, and I pushed him. And, and I met his girlfriend at a conference that we had. And, you know, he was like, this guy right here is the reason why I'm getting help. This is the guy right here why I'm, I'm going to, and I'm meeting with, you know, the therapist. And I think you guys need to keep pushing that narrative because we got to normalize this because the more that you hear and the more you realize that everybody is going through it, it's just what you do with it. That's a great way to put it, man. really is. Well, like I said earlier, I am, I'm, I actually am upset that you're leaving uh soon this last last uh few days with y'all you know laura she's she's being quiet today red river kind of did her in i think <laughs> and jen and matt and and bryson it, it's i'm actually sad to see y'all go i i hope that y'all had a good time here in texas and you got to uh experience some better weather you got to, to see some well you didn't matt but laura did some half-dressed people serving beers at a at a, a big honky-tonk here we have in texas um i'm gonna miss y'all and i'm and we're i consider you a friend now uh, we've been texting and, and communicating for for uh, many months and we're gonna i want to continue that and if you have any other ideas suggestions you let me know because i will listen to you and i will take what you tell me to heart and it's very nice. I'm glad. I'm glad I got to uh, meet your meet your wife and everything that you've gone through and everything you've overcome. That they are the they're the ones that you've helped yourself, but you've helped them the most. And and your family is going to be so much better and closer. And and I'm just proud of you. You know, I don't wish an officer involved shooting on anybody, um, but because of that. You know, I know I'm a better person today, but I've met some I've met some pretty amazing people. And I'm thankful. You're still here and you're gonna meet many more amazing people and you're gonna do good things to help your peers combat what you've been battling your entire police life. You're gonna help them Put away those Rolodexes, right? right? That's what it's about. And that's our mission, and that's your mission, and that's what we need to, as officers and first responders and just people in, in general. We need to keep helping each other. Everybody has their own Rolodex, and everybody needs to be equipped with tools on how to stop it from flipping. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, thanks for coming, Matt. It, no, thanks, thanks for, for sharing and, and being vulnerable. And, and Jen, thanks for, uh, for being there with him. You know, we 
there's a lot of people that, that don't get the credit for, for sticking with their spouse or even just being involved in a relationship with anybody that goes through the stuff we go through. And I know there's a lot of secondary stuff there also, but uh, it's it's great to see you guys do this together. Thanks for having us. It's been awesome to see the relationship that you guys all have together down here. So you guys got a really good thing going on. You just need to spread the word and keep doing what you're doing because you guys are pretty amazing. I think that's a perfect way to wrap it up. Thank you, Steve Claggett, uh, for joining us. Uh, I knew uh, I've been keeping it under wraps up until you walked in today, and I actually got a good photo of y'all, of y'all shaking hands. I'm just happy to hang out with some people that have class for a change. You two knuckleheads, <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> Thank you, Kent. Thank you, Laura, for uh, coming down here and spending a few days with us, and and uh, and actually buying our. our snake oil sell you know snake oil salesman <laughs> job <laughs> go back to cedar rapids and, and report that D- dallas knows what they're talking about seriously thank y'all and if anybody out there needs to contact us or they have an idea if they just need to reach out like matt did matt can attest i will respond atlbridgen at gmail.com just reach out and even it's just a vent or to say hello i will respond to it because it means a lot to me meeting these great people and and 800 miles away it means more to me than they'll ever know thank you hey brother hey sister i'll never give up on you hey mrs hey mister i'll see this all the way through No matter how far the sun and the moon, I'll never give up on you. Down when you're lonely, I'll pull you up. Life leaves you heavy when the going gets tough. I'll be your shoulder, together we'll run. Up from the bottom, yeah, we'll rise above Hey brother, hey sister, I'll never give up on you Hey missus, hey mister, I'll see this all the way How far for the gold and the blue I'll 
never give up on me.